everyone. This is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor to talk with her about her brand new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Now, if you've been on this uh, this journey of lifelong learning with us here at the Learner's Corner, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to create a safe place to literally have any conversation. We want to have or create a safe place to have any conversation, whether that's one where we agree or disagree or, or we're just trying to figure things out. We want to engage in everything and and everything or everything and everything and anything and everything uh and and just so on and so forth and today we're going to be talking about imagination and images and stories and metaphors and how it has affected us or affected evangelicalism throughout history and how it even can affect us today or how how it has affected us today and Again, we're always on this lifelong journey of learning, which includes uh, just what we're going to talk about today, stories, images, metaphors, just everything. And so if you want to see some of the things, the images, the metaphors, the stories, the lessons, the learnings, all of that good stuff that I'm paying attention to, please subscribe to my Substack to where I just give three of the things that I'm just paying attention to, three of the things that are engaging my imagination currently. And it could be anything from a good book to fiction, to uh, TV shows, to music, to movies, and it literally could be a video game, literally just anything that is just engaging my imagination and that is engaging my uh, attention as well. And again, you could just go into the show notes and check those out and subscribe right now. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Karen Swallow Pryor, and Karen's actually been on the podcast before, and so we'll link to the episode uh, that she was on previously as well. But today I'm talking with her about her brand new book, The Evangelical Imagination. And let me tell you a little bit about her and then we will jump into the conversation. So Karen Swallow Pryor is one of today's leading evangelical writers and commentators. And she is the award-winning author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. She is a frequent speaker, a monthly columnist at Religion News Service, and has written for Christianity Today. The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Vox. She is a contributing editor for Comment, a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, and a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education. And she currently lives with her husband in Central Virginia. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Karen, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, one of my favorite places to begin a lot of conversations is I love hearing the origin story of things, especially of works of art. And in your case, you've written this book, The Evangelical Imagination. And so I would just love to hear where the origin of this book began for you. Hmm. Well, um, I mean, books take me a long time to write, and I think about them for a long time, but I would say the beginning of this book was something I talk about in um, the introduction, which was teaching Victorian literature to um, students in the context of an evangelical university. So many of my students grew up in kind of an evangelical subculture, um, and we would read this Victorian literature and study the culture in the background and and how the evangelical movement influenced it and it reflected um, those values. And my students would just start to notice that the Victorian culture and time period sounded a lot like what they were taught as 20th and 21st century evangelicals. And so we would just stop and look at it and say, okay, so what, what about this culture and this age and this literature really does reflect good biblical ideas um, and reflect the Christian faith and what really is just cultural. 
And so we would have such great conversations around that, that that's sort of the center of the book. Um, and that, you know, it, it grew out of that because evangelicalism led to the Victorian age and we're living after the Victorian age, but so much of what defines um, 21st century American evangelicalism is really more often cultural than biblical. And that's true of, true of anyone living any time and place, any Christians. And But this is our job is to separate those things out. Yeah. Would you mind just giving an example of a way that um, that we can that evangelicalism can be a little bit more cultural than biblical? Yeah. So one of you know again from my classroom and, and something I talk about in this book in the chapter on domesticity is a very popular and influential work from the Victorian era called The Angel in the House and it's a poem that um, a husband wrote about his wife in sort of a fictionalized. Um, version set to poetry, but very reflective of his his views and um, the way that he lived. And it was, you know, literally putting a woman on a pedestal, talking about her as being the angel and the one who who makes him more moral and more virtuous and how she overlooks um, any fault that he has. And so that was one idea that, you know, that some evangelicals do think of women as being angels and being responsible for the morality of men and also that um, women should stay in in the home and, and govern the home and not have a role in the public sphere. So those are Victorian ideas that um, many evangelicals do teach or receive. And yet, I think if we look in the Bible, um, especially say the Proverbs 31 woman, um, you know, it's a very different picture of woman yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier and you and you mentioned that sometimes it could take uh, a little while for you to to write a book. And that and I, I would be curious to hear like what's what's kind of the turning point for you that helps you decide of like, oh, you know what, I think this is maybe just like a really cool idea versus like, no, this is an idea that I want to write a book about. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, um, especially, you know, for anyone who's, you know, a writer or thinking about writing. I mean, you know, there's an old saying um, that you hear in any writing context, and that is write what you know. And I think that's really, really important. And so there are lots of good ideas out there uh, that you might come across and read about. But when it's something that you know, and that you can draw on, I mean, I am an evangelical. Um, I love the church. I love, I love evangelicalism. I, you know, I've studied its history um, since the days of, of my doctoral dissertation. And I love my students. I love the younger generation. I've learned a lot from them. And just putting all those things together, that's really, really the book. And so, um, and then of course, you know, I have an editor and I have a publishing house. And so you kind of have to get sell them on the idea yeah. uh, which is a very helpful and healthy process because they actually help it to become more solid and um see things that you don't necessarily see mm -hmm. well one of the i mean it's a very uh obvious thing because it's literally in the title of your book is imagination and uh i want to camp there for a little bit i want to read uh this quote because i think it just it it just broadens our perspective of imagination, which I love so much. And you say, imagination engages our whole humanity, physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. This truth is the starting point of any right understanding of the imagination, including its role, power, and significance. And I, first of all, I would love to have you elaborate just on that quote any more that you uh, want to. And then I would love um, just to kind of hear where, where do you think we lack in terms of our imagination as it pertains to evangelicals and even the church? Mm, yeah. Well, you're the first person to kind of center on that quote. Good job. It really <laughs> is. It really is an important foundation to the whole book and I think our, to our whole humanity. So yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that the first thing a Christian should understand about the imagination is that it's it's a reflection of being made in the image of God, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we are his image, and, and so we are his imagination. He imaged us, imagined us in a very literal, um, as well as other ways, and so... Um, and so if our imagination is a reflection of being made in his image, then of course 
it involves all of our humanity. I mean, we've inherited so many um, ideas about the imagination. Like some ideas might be that, it, oh, it's just kind of an ethereal, weird thing. People who are out there have active imaginations, but we don't all, or it could be something that we think of it as being just like very, um, we might almost have a Gnostic view of it. Like it's just very spiritual and we have to be inspired in order to use our imaginations when really, everything that goes into our being human affects our imagination. I mean, so, so another thing I talk about in the book is that, you know, there, you know, there's a world around us that we can see, touch, hear, taste, and smell, but that doesn't mean that we're actually registering everything, right? We have to actually pay attention to it and we actually do train our attentions. So, so we, you know, we could go buy something every day and not really see it because we're not paying attention to it. And so our imagination is formed by not only what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, but also what we pay attention to. And that had, and, and we see taste, touch, and smell through our actual physical body. So that's the physical element. And then we think about what we imagine. So there's an intellectual part of it. And I mean, I don't know, just tell me when to stop because I could no, go on and on no, about this. <laughs> I, I, I love this so much. And so as much as you want to continue, you are welcome to continue <laughs> on it. Um, yeah, so I, I don't even remember the rest of the quote that you read, but oh, just so, yeah, so I kind of covered the first half of it. The other yeah. half is if we understand just how our imaginations work in us and how it affects our entire humanity as individuals, then only then can we begin to understand how our imagination then affects the rest of the world. We affect one another, the way we imagine things, the way we, you know, interact with other people, the, then, then the art that we make and whether that's lasting and significant and good and true. Um, and so I just don't know how, what part of ourselves other than our, our actual spirit um, is more essential to our being than our imagination. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I, in, in the past several years, I feel like it's been a journey for me of touching more into the imagination. And I think that's something that isn't necessarily always present whenever it comes to the church. I mean, when was the last time that we were encouraged in our in our imagination and everything? I'd, I'd just be curious to hear your thought. And again, maybe you disagree with the premise too, and feel free to say so. Um, but I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on Maybe why the lack of emphasis on imagination? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. And um, so, you know, I think a sort of simple, clear, easy answer that you know we could unpack for a long time is simply that um, is you know one thing I commonly say in my classroom is that human history is a history of pendulum swings from one extreme to another. Some you know something goes wrong, so we correct it, and often we overcorrect it. That's just human. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, um, which again, I'm all for, I'm Protestant, yay. Um, but it was, you know, the Protestant Reformation was, was a, had an emphasis on reason and rationalism. It's very, you know, it helped to bring about the Enlightenment, helped to bring about evangelicalism itself. And so, you know, we as a people for five or 600 years have emphasized reason, systems, empiricism, all of those things, you know, doctrine, um, apart from often mystery and imagination and intuition. And so it's part of our correction and perhaps overcorrection uh, within the Protestant um, era. And that's, that's sort of, I think the big answer, but then there are smaller, more subtle ways, even just going back to what I said, sometimes we just don't really under, have a complete understanding of what the imagination is and how it works and how all-encompassing it is. We just kind of put it in this little box and, and think of it as something that we, we use when we want to or don't use when we're actually using it all the time. Or maybe we're thinking, you know, we, we minimize, we, we, we don't realize that we're immersed in imaginative experiences all day long and using our imaginations, but we're thinking about it in other terms. So part of what I want to do with this book is to just say this, you know, to, to just help people realize how central the imagination is to what we experience and do every day mm -hmm. what what is capturing your imagination right now 
Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, well, I am, you know, it's summer for me. Um, and normally I, you know, most of my life I've been, you know, be gearing up to go back to school and I'm not going back to school uh, for the first time since I was five years old. I'm sort of transitioning to full-time writing. So I'm doing a lot of writing, but the thing that just, uh, I have been reading voraciously um, I've always been a reader, but most of the time, you know, I'm reading for research or, or school or whatever. And I've just, I've just been reading books and novels at my pleasure and, um, and just reading different, like I'll read a, a modern one and then I'll read an older one and I'll read a serious one and I'll read a scary one. Um, so lots of stories are consuming mm. my imagination right now. Mm. Would you mind sharing what one of those stories are? I just started um, The Optimist's Daughter by Eudora Welty because somebody um, messaged me and wanted to know what I thought about it and I hadn't read it. So I'm reading yeah. that and it's just delightful. Um, and yeah, so that's what I'm reading right now. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I want to I go back to uh, something that you mentioned that in order to engage our imagination, we have to be paying attention. And so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear just your thoughts on what has helped you pay it like just greater attention because you know i mean this isn't like new to probably anybody who's listening but it's just becoming harder to pay attention Mm -hmm. to things you know because of just a multitude of Mm -hmm. reasons and Mm -hmm. so i would just love to hear what's helping Mm -hmm. you pay more attention no that's i mean and and i I would just alter what you said a little bit we're always we're always paying attention i think it's just like Mm. what we're paying attention to and the depth of that attention um And, you know, but as you were indicating, our attentions are being grabbed by the things that are easy to pull at the way that algorithms on our social media are are designed to keep pulling us deeper and deeper into whatever rabbit hole um, is taking us down. Or if we even have, you know, a screen up and all of the the things that are popping up on the notifications, our, our attentions are becoming so scattered and so diverse. I feel it in myself because I'm old enough to have grown up before the digital age. And I remember a time when I could just literally get lost in a book for hours at a time. Those, you know, part of it's just being an adult. <laughs> um, but part of it is this digital age where it's just, it is very hard to do that. And so, um, so one of the things that I do, I mean, I read only print books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's just, a, is it, I spend so much time on my screen and on my phone that when I read a book, um, un, unless I absolutely, it's research and I absolutely cannot afford it or get it, um, you know, because sometimes academic books are expensive. Once in a while, I'll read something online, but for the most part, I just get the print books and that does I mean, holding the book is a tactile experience, turning the page, marking it with a pen, um, that's something. And then um, just things like, I, I like to run any every day that I can. Uh, I'm not, you know, an athlete by any <laughs> stretch of imagination, but um, being outside and seeing nature and feeling the sun and feeling the pavement beneath my feet um, is just something that helps me to sustain my attention for a longer period of time um so those are some things that i do yeah i'm the same i love physical books i i always prefer physical as much as as much as is possible um no i want to go back to another thing that you mentioned as well in that our uh our imagination can have an effect on on the greater world around us i'd love to uh, just hear maybe an example that stands out to you either from your personal life or something from the book or even just something that comes top of mind of an example of someone uh just using their imagination to Mm. to affect the greater world and it could be big or small too yeah well i mean i'm trying to think of a couple things the most obvious thing is just this book Um, Mm -hmm. which one early reviewer made an observation that I think was interesting and helpful. I mean, he just said that a lot of people are talking and writing and thinking about evangelicalism right now. Um, Most of the, most of them are doing it from like a historical or sociological or theological perspective, um, but to approach it from um, the terms of the imagination is very different. And And so I mean, this is just how I think the book reflects how I think. Mm-hmm. And so it it is a little bit different, I guess, but it but 
thinking a little bit differently can help other people think a little bit differently and have different yeah. conversations. So that's, that's an obvious example. But I would just say, um, you know, take, you know, a great work of art, whether it's high art or popular art, like just take the Beatles, you know, yeah. <laughs> how they just developed, you know, they didn't emerge out of a vacuum, but they were in, had musical influences and they seized on a moment and they forever influenced music. I'm not a music person, so I'm just, maybe someone would disagree with me, but, and there's a better example, but, um, you know, there always have been musicians and always bands and different styles of music, but here comes a group that just kind of is, converges in the right moment of time and with the right influences and, and affects everything else. Um, and if, you know, there are lots of books that do this, like speculative fiction or revisionist fiction, where they kind of imagine something that didn't happen or something that turned a different way. Um, like the Midnight Library is is an, a book I read about a woman, you know, it's a, she enters this library and, and is able to see how her life would have turned out if she'd made a different decision at a different time. It's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a, an entertaining and thoughtful book. Um, and again, we can all, you know, all do that. Think about how just one different turn or decision and things not only for us, but everyone else would turn different. I mean, the classic example of that is the, um, uh, it's a wonderful life, right? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I want to, I don't think I mentioned it so far, but I, I want to talk about some stuff tied to your subtitle as well. <laughs> and your and the subtitle of the book is how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture and crisis. And so kind of going off of that, I'd love to hear what's, what is just a story or an image or a metaphor that you're seeing right now in evangelicalism that you wish, uh, was, there was more of a remodeling project going on with that story, mm. that metaphor, that image. Mm. Yeah. So um, I, the, the one that I talk about in the book that I think most anyone who has any connection to evangelicalism will, will get and will see is, um, is that what we mean and think of when we talk about testimony, that's a whole chapter in the mm. book, but mm -hmm. um, you know, the Bible is clear that we need to be ready to give a defense of our faith and to share, you know, give our testimonies filled with testimonies. And so it's a really important and crucial idea. It's also important not only to our Christian experience, but also just being a human, right? I mean, we have testimonies in court and we have, you know, we give testimony, you know, when someone writes a letter of recommendation, um, we give testimonies in all kinds of ways and they're essential to being human. And they also can often be in the form of a story. Um, and for evangelicals in particular, because we emphasize conversion so much, we also emphasize kind of telling the story of our conversion. And I love stories. I love that we love to tell our stories and that's wonderful. But when we are, our culture, our subculture kind of narrows down the formula for giving a testimony, um, like that it needs to be something where we can actually identify the day, the time, the hour, or it's better if it's very dramatic or it's better if it has sort of a clear beginning and a clear end and isn't messy in between. Um, we just have these ideas about how a testimony should go and that can make it difficult for someone who doesn't have that kind of testimony or it can make us kind of retrofit what we experienced onto this template. Or as I mentioned in the book, it can actually inadvertently or not inadvertently encourage people to give testimonies that are more dramatic than the facts are, um, embellish. And so that's like a very simple example, yeah. but because testimony is good, it's wonderful, yeah. but it doesn't yeah. have to fit into the formula that we've made. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about like, put, how do, how do we push back against that formula? What can pushing back against that formula look mm. like? Yeah, that's a that's a good um, question. So, I, so for me, you know, it's it's because I, as I say in the book, I don't I accepted Christ as my savior when I was a very little girl, um, mm -hmm. and I don't remember when it was. I remember, you know, when I think I 
was being sinful and disobedient as a small child. And then I can remember at a later time, just knowing Jesus was my savior. And I remember mm -hmm. my baptism um, and maybe, and, and, and I, I had nervousness for years about sharing that because I, uh, and I kept, you know, as many have shared too, they, you know, I kept checking and saying the prayer over again, just to yep. make sure, right. We've done oh, that. Yeah. But if, if we just share our stories, again, our testimonies that are a little bit different and show, um, its legitimacy and its fruitfulness, um, we can enlarge people's imagination so that they can see that things somehow go differently than we expect. That's a very small example, mm -hmm. but just by sharing and showing in faithfulness and showing our faithfulness, I think we can um, break out of the boxes that we make for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I, this, this is, I guess, kind of similar to the last question that I asked. But like, what what's a, a new story or a new image or a new metaphor that you would say that Christianity, evangelicalism just needs to become more comfortable with because we, maybe we've rejected it. Maybe we don't think it's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that that's a good question. The first one that comes to mind is a, a metaphor that's somewhat new and that's gotten a lot of pushback. Uh, and it's one that I that I do allude to in my book, and that is the metaphor of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Now, deconstruction is, con you know, a concern because many people who have deconstructed have left the faith. Um, they've become deconverted or, you know, or apostatized. Um, but a lot of people have not, and they've embraced that term. Because, and I think it's a very apt metaphor. And it's in some ways, it's what I'm doing in the book, because as I talk about the sort of the house metaphor, mm -hmm. um, you know, evangelicalism in the house, the Christian faith is, yeah. a, is a bigger, it's a mansion, I guess. Um, and if they're, you know, everything we we just might not, we don't realize what's underneath the surface. Um, if everything's fine, if, if the paper and the paint and the flooring is all good, but if something needs to be, you know, repaired and we peel back the layers for some reason, and then we look underneath at the structure at the floor joists and the beams and, you know, that's the extent of my construction <laughs> vocabulary, but if we see that things underneath re need repair, or even if they're rotten and need to be thrown out, then we, we ought to be doing that. And so that metaphor of deconstruction is is scary because of the context in which it's happened and because of the results for many people. But I think if we embrace it and show as I'm actually trying to in this book, that there can be a healthy and good way of deconstruction um, so that we can reconstruct and fix and repair, I think that's a metaphor that we could use today. Yeah, and I, I would just completely agree. We've talked about deconstruction on the podcast so oh, so many oh, times. Oh, yeah. So, yep. Yeah. I didn't even know that. So no, you're <laughs> you're good. Um, one one quote that I uh, want to read and then uh, ask you about is: You say, "Yet in our humanness, language can be an obstacle to the truth as well as an expression of that truth." Would you mind just kind of showing an example of that quote and how that plays out? Sure. So, I mean, this is basic to language and it gets even trickier, I think, when we're talking about things as essential as Christian faith and doctrine. But uh, oftentimes we say one thing and um, and someone else understands that word differently. Um, so, uh, you know, so when people you, you know, maybe talk about their identity, um, and they say, might identify a sin that they're struggling with. And other people will say, well, you should not identify yourself with that, that thing because your identity is solely in Christ. Well, what does that even mean? Because identity is actually a modern term, um, you know, that, that is part of um, individual expressivism. So even to say, to talk about our identity, period, is something that has a cultural context. And so, um, and so some, and sometimes people use shorthand or they, you know, they, they mean one thing. Um, and another example I talk about in the book is how um, the term woke has a very long history, um, mm -hmm. particularly obviously within the black community and it, and it means something. Um, and it's something that they have used. And then other people have come along in the sort of 
divided, polarized political context and begun to use that word woke as an insult or a pejorative. And they don't even use it to mean what the people who first started to use it meant. They just mean anything that, you know, is is liberal or secular or goes against what I believe. Um, and they call you know, they use the term woke mob to meet, cover a whole range of issues when actually that was a word that was really important and valuable within a context. And um, it's kind of been stolen and weaponized. And I mean, words do change meaning, um, but that something like that can just be a real obstacle to communication and understanding um, when the word means so many different things to so many people. Mm -hmm. You know, one of one of the things that really got me thinking about your book and was like an aha moment for me is in uh, in the section where you talk about improvement mm -hmm. and you talk about how like at, at one point improvement was a very foreign idea to, to everybody, which yeah. which which feels like that idea of uh, improvement being foreign feels so foreign for today because everything is centered <laughs> yeah. around improvement. Um, but would you talk a little bit about like the origins of that idea of improvement and how that began to affect um, evangelicalism? Yeah, I mean, and I, I again, I love to just like ask people to exercise their imaginations a little bit. And because as you said, it's really hard to imagine living in a world where we aren't thinking about improvement in some form or another. But imagine that you lived in a time and a place and among a people where nothing had changed for thousands of years. You know, your 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 father was a shepherd, your grandfather was a shepherd, your great grandfather was a shepherd, your great great grandfather, you know, you yeah. get the idea. Yeah. So you would if you had done if things had been pretty much the same for generation upon generation you would not really be thinking about improvement. You would be thinking about survival and maybe thriving and having a loving family, but those were, it would be the same. And so the word improvement is actually an English word that arose like in the early modern period. Um, I think in the 16th century is, uh, is, the, uh, is what I found in my research. Uh, and it originally just had to do with increasing the value of your land by making improvements on it. Um, and so for a couple of centuries, you know, the word developed and it began to be applied in other areas. And until in the middle of the 19th century, all of a sudden Samuel Smiles writes a book called Self-Improvement. And he lays out the whole kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, which another American writer picked up on even more, but just this idea of an individual overcoming obstacles and making a better life for himself, which is a very modern idea. And now, of course, we have, you know, multi-million or billion dollar industries designed toward self-improvement in every possible area you could imagine, even like home improvement stores or which, you know, I'm all, you know, I, I live in a house that's 100 years old, so we're always doing a lot of improvement. I'm not saying these things are bad, but then the illustration that I include in the book is is uh, from the 1940s. It's like a poster of, of uh, you know, pork and beans, and it's just saying new and improved. Like, we're just, we have to improve. If, if it says improved on the cereal box, we're like, oh, okay. Um, we're just, we live in a culture where we expect improvement, um, and we buy something that says it was improved with a really, I think often not really knowing if it is or not. We just assume it, that improved is better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit more about like the caution that sometimes we might need to have with improvement because it is such an idea to think, oh yeah, it's improved. Of course I'm going to get it. Of course it's got to be better, but, uh, talk, caution us yeah, a little bit yeah. on that. So, I mean, I think there are a, a couple of, I, again, I, I, I'm all for something being genuinely better, but I think if we think about the limits or even just the terminology, it, it, that can help us be cautious. So for example, a point I make in this chapter is we don't want to confuse self-improvement with sanctification, right? Mm -hmm. For the Christian, obviously sanctification is what we are striving for, but that, you know, Becoming more holy, I suppose, you know, obviously that's a kind of improvement, but it just sort of diminishes the whole idea of what holiness is if we just consider, if we you confuse it with self-improvement. Another idea um, is that we might think of improvement as progress. 
Um, okay, but we also need to remember that in terms of the human condition, there is really no progress. I mean, we can make social reforms and make improvements and have modern medicine, thank the Lord for modern medicine. Um, and those are kinds of improvements or progress, but we ought not put ourselves under the illusion that somehow human beings and human nature is going to progress and improve such that, you know, we are better than our forebears or less sinful or less prone to error because that doesn't change. So again, we just have to sort of parse out and say, okay, what can be improved? And, and also, you know, if we improve something, improve something, um, is there, it, is it possible to do that without a cost? You know, so yes, I might um, improve uh, my wardrobe by buying the latest fashions, which I am guilty of, um, but am in doing that, am I, you know, depleting the resources of the earth? Am I, you know, am I exploiting child labor across the globe by constantly updating my wardrobe? You know, so, so we can see one area of improvement, but is there something, what, what is the cost of that? And not just the cost to ourselves, but the cost to, um, you know, the world that we live in. You know, another idea that you talk about, which again, was just very impactful to me is you talk about sentimentality. Can you unpack what, first of all, what that is? Yeah, so sentimentality is just referring to sort of our emotions mm -hmm. and sentimentalism is when, you know, we indulge the emotions at the expense of other things. And um, that chapter, as it relates to evangelicalism is, you know, I start out talking about the, the, the fact that I think that what makes a lot of Christian art and evangelical art today inferior I mean, there are many things that, that do that, but one sort of prevailing thing is is this tendency towards sentimentality. Um, and, you know, that's a fun topic. I love talking about that. And, um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching sentimental movies or getting a sentimental card, but I think that we should recognize that there's also a cost to that. If we overindulge our feelings, especially sort of the, the soft comforting ones, we can overlook you know, the harsh realities of the world and the pain and suffering um, that's not only around us, but that we require just to have these sort of soft sentimental feelings. But then I move into not just art, but even, you know, how we experience worship and our mm -hmm. faith and our relationships. If we're just always about indulging the pleasant emotions, um, we're, it, there's actually a distortion of all that's true and all that is good and beautiful because it, hum, the human experience is not just about what's soft and pleasant. Um, and if we indulge in those things, that's okay, but we should at least recognize it and start to count the cost. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the aspect of that that really stood out to me is this idea of earned and unearned emotion. Yes. And, and what came to my mind for that is, uh, you know, I, I am a huge, uh, like, Marvel fan and, like, all sorts of fandom and stuff. And it made me think about all the moments to where it's that they try to capture, like, the fan service and stuff or the fandom. And it's like, well, you you didn't put in the work for this. You're just trying to get this, this emotion out of us without doing, like, the necessary story and character beats of that. And I, I would just love to hear... Um, just maybe an example or two of how you see that play out in terms of Christianity mm. as well, or even mm. in the church and in evangelicalism. Sure. Well, there, there are some easy and obvious targets. And my challenge to readers or listeners is to kind of look for the, the less easy and obvious ones. But, you know, if, if we expect from a worship service, walking out and feeling good, right? Or from the music just to feel good. And, and, and sometimes, you know, and, and I don't mean just happy, you know, like I sometimes call, you know, refer to that as happy clappy. Um, but sometimes we like to feel, sometimes feeling sad makes us feel good, right? Like, yeah. because yeah. we think, oh, oh, I, I felt sad. So that that's actually good. So, so just that's, again, an indulgence and emotion for emotion's sake. And so, um, so we can err in, in that direction. Um, we can also err, some of us can err, like if I just like dry, rational 
exposition, which I do, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, if, if I'm this, you know, denying the emotional or just, you know, distorting in the opposite direction, that can be um, just, just as, um, just as flawed. And so, um, yeah, I think that we do, it's not just evangelicalism. We actually today live in a culture because it is so defined by like, you know, individual expressivism and those things. We just tend to, that's, that's our cultural tendency. Um, and so we need to watch for it, not only in evangelicalism, but just even in the culture around us, uh, where we just want to feel the right things at the right time. And, and so that sometimes leaves us unable to process the feelings that we think we aren't supposed to have, or the thing, things that happen um, that make us, that we didn't think should happen, and we don't know how to process the feelings that come with that. So um, there's just a lot of ways that we either avoid proper emotion and feeling, or we overindulge. Um, mm. And so, again, that's just another of many areas that we need to strive for that sort of virtuous mean in the middle. Mm-hmm. What helps you even discern like that you're giving like the like the proper emotional response? Because I mean, just as you were saying, like there there are things that happen, both happy and sad and angry and all of that stuff that that do elicit those types of feelings and it is legitimate. What helps you discern that it's like, okay, I'm not overindulging, but I'm not underreacting to the emotion either. No, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, um, scripture is a, a reliable guide here, you know, so we can take any emotion. The Bible specifically says something, you know, be angry and sin not. Um, mm-hmm. So if I am feel th- that that's giving me license to feel all the anger that I want to feel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I cannot sin. So I can I can let myself feel it, the anger or the sadness or whatever it might be. But I have to think about, OK, so at what point am I? Am I sinning? And that's not always clear, obviously, but we have to, you know, at least be thinking about it and asking the question. I'm a big proponent of the of the of the saying, whatever it is, you know, like identifying the problem is half the solution. Or I would say it's even more because sometimes we're just not even, you know, we just have to at least be asking the question. Um, and we might not get exactly the right answer, but we can avoid the biggest errors, I think, by just sort of acknowledging um, that there is, uh, you know, that that it is a question. Mm-hmm. Another idea that you, in uh, another image that you really touch on, what which I've just been thinking about more recently, is this idea of empire as mm-hmm. well. Too, mm-hmm. would you mind explaining a little bit what that is and how um, how that can show up in Christianity and evangelicalism? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as I say in the chapter, empire building has been around as long as human beings have been around. Um, so it's not just evangelicals, but it's really important, I think, that we own the fact that evangelicalism was arising alongside the rise of the British Empire. Um, and if you've studied any British history, you know that they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. Yeah. Uh, well, it did, uh, right? And it you know, it could set on any other empire, the American one, the evangelical one. Um, that just brings us, I think, some some good humility. But yeah. e- evangelicalism has always been tied to empire building, the, the rise of the British Empire. And so that means that even as evangelicals were doing the good work of spreading the gospel throughout the world um, through missions work, um, that they were also advancing the British Empire. And so that's a completely different reason for going out into the ends of the earth. There's also been an overlooking of the way that the gospel was already in some of these places that the British and later American missionaries went to, or diminishing of um, the Christians um, who were already there and had traditions and cultures that might have looked different, but were no less um, steeped in the gospel. And so we might not, you know, I mean, missions has changed uh, a lot. We're learning a lot and, and doing things differently, but we still have that tie to empire. And I think that helps explain why evangelicals, you know, love our, you know, our big mega churches and our big publishing, you know, I'm, I'm getting a book published and I would like for it to be well received, obviously, yeah. but 
you know, it's part, it's also sort of part of America, America, everything about America is big and vast and about being great. And as a evangelicalism is, is part of America, we're, we're, we kind of also adopt that mindset. Um, I mean, I find myself needing to see that differently and to recognize that and compare that to sort of the quietness and the smallness and the weakness that Jesus displayed, which paradoxically turned the world upside down, right? But he didn't do yeah. it in the way that um, that human systems and politics and power would do it. And um, that's really hard to, it's really hard to shake our own culture and to, you know, find the way of Jesus, but that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, em- empire is just one of those ideas that it's, it's just not talked about. Uh, a lot especially in um and in a lot of modern churches and everything what are some things that um that you that we could just keep an eye out for in Mm. terms of what empire can look Mm. like well again drawing from my own sort of experience and background and other people will have different ones but because my area is teaching english literature Mm -hmm. um yeah there are books and works and authors that i've studied for many years such and i cite some of the books such as daniel defoe and rudyard kipling and i have read the them for years and yet i see them with different eyes now than i did maybe 20 years ago because my eyes have been opened to you know, colonialism and imperialism and empire. And so I, I'm i actually horrified when I read um, The White Man's Burden, which I include in the book, which, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of saw it one, you know, it, it was just something that was beloved for so long in um, American um, culture and British culture. Um, and yet it just, I can see it differently now than I would have then because I'm more sensitive to the explicit racism and um, colonialism in it. And again, it's in the book. You can read it. You could Google Mm -hmm. it. Um, And so I think that there are many ways in which once we begin to sort of see things from our neighbor's perspective um, and recognize that their set of experiences and the the way that the, the world, they have interacted with the world that might be different, that like our perception and our experience experiences are normative for us, but that doesn't mean that they reflect eternal, absolute eternal truth. Our neighbors have different experiences and they see things differently. Um, and so if we start paying attention to them and listening to them, it, I think it, it changes us. And that's, that's part of what it means to be human. And that's, I mean, that is what it, that's reflected in, in God becoming man, God be, human to share our experience with us and that's what we're called to do too mm, yeah i mean we're already human but we, yeah. we get to share other experiences yeah. Yeah. yeah well it's it's even to live out that humanity right too. right yeah fully yes fully as we can yes yeah um tied tied close to that is this quote that i want to read and you say to be a product of a subculture to inherit unthinkingly uncritically and assuming all its images, metaphors, and stories is to play, plagiarize a faith. Would you mind elaborating mm-hmm. just a little bit more on mm-hmm. that provocative quote? Yeah, well, that's in the context of where I'm talking about literal kind of plagiarism and ghostwriting, which again is part of this empire building, uh, mm-hmm. which because I'm a professor who has to deal with plagiarism, because I'm a writer who cares about integrity and in writing, um, it's a little bit of a sore spot for me, you know, because we do have so many people in this evangelical empire who publish books under their name, but they're written by other people. Um, and that's part of the empire building. And, you know, I, I, there's a little quip that I I think I've made, but I, I'm usually a little afraid to make it. But it's because I'll, oftentimes these are celebrity pastors who... Yeah published books and and i want to say i don't pretend i'm a pastor why do you have to pretend you're a writer that (laughs) you know um and so that you know but i think i you know i think that's even though that's a little lighthearted question i think if we dig in that's a question that deserves to be answered and so 
there are so many ways we can kind of take those shortcuts or or be inauthentic. Um, I think authenticity is, a, is just another way of talking about integrity and genuineness. Um, and if we're doing all these things to sell something or to prop up the system, um, then, you know, I, it's easy to see how that is bad, but it's so easy even for us at the micro level to, to do the same thing, to just kind of inherit an idea or way of thinking, um, you know, with without examining it, without looking, you know, we talked about deconstruction before. I mean, yeah. you can just peel back. You don't necessarily have to deconstruct, but you do need to, you do need to look under the floorboards every once in a while just to make yeah. sure everything's okay. Um, yeah. And that can help us avoid this plagiarizing or this stealing or this, you know, this lack of, of integrity or genuineness in what we what we tell ourselves we believe, let alone what we tell other people. Yeah, it even just made me think of like the the plagiarism example of what you were talking about of, you know, even even having someone else, you know, write your book and, and things like that, that it's really not about the creative act. It's it, it's more about gaining the, the power or whatever yes. the thing is that comes yes. from doing the, from the result of the creative act and not the journey or the process of going right. through the creative act. Right. Right. And I mean, of course, I, you know, if there is a, not to invoke a, a, a stereotype, but if there's a yeah. football, football player out there who has a wonderful <laughs> story to tell and isn't a writer and hires someone yeah. put the, per, you yeah. know, nobody expects that the football player is a yeah. writer. So you just yeah. put the name of the person who helped write it. And that's all. Everyone's being upfront about it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we, this, what we're, my point in, in talking about our own faith is like, we need to be more aware of whose name is on our faith, right? Like, who have I been reading that makes me think this, or who makes, mm -hmm. who have I been following or been learning under that makes me think this. And then I know, you know, I mean, I, you know, I can go back to the different study Bibles I've used throughout my life, yeah. right? Like, I thought that, you know, one particular study Bible that I had, like, I didn't know it was just an interpret, like, I was yeah. formed by that yeah. interpretation, um, yeah. right? And there are other, you know, because of the footnotes. And, and yeah. yeah, so we all are. Yeah. Well, that even comes to my mind of like developing the school, the skill of being of, of being a critical thinker. Right. I, I would just be curious to hear any thoughts on um on that, or even like what you encourage your students to do to to better become uh, critical thinkers around like the images and the in the other the stories, all of that stuff. I mean, a lot of it has to do with just being aware and asking the questions, as I mentioned before. I'll take reading as an example, since that's what I I deal with is reading literature. Yeah. We live in a world in which we everything is like we process everything quickly. And most of the reading we do is for information. And so I find that even with my English majors who love to read and are, you know, signing up for it, don't know how to stop and read slowly and reread a passage or look up a word that they don't know, which is a way of critically reading. And so I have to actually train them to do that. Well, that's the same thing we need to do with all of the things that we care about, you know? So if, if you are any kind of artist, you're going to, you know, execute that art with care. Um, if you care about your faith, you want to ask those, well, why do I believe this? What, you know, who am I listening to? Who is teaching me? Those kinds of things. Um, and just e even in our relationships, like it's not enough to, you know, this is sort of a, a, a a trope that gets used over and over again but it's not as though like when you marry someone they just tell you they love you on the one day and like that covers it you never have to say it again right like we yeah. just we need to check it we need to refresh and renew and grow and learn um so in every area of human life that is important um and you know almost everything is um again you know i i admit i'm you know i'm i could analyze everything to death and i can err in that direction so i'm not saying everyone has to live like i live inside my head yeah. <laughs> but um we should treat things with care and attention um and not thoughtlessness or just assuming um and taking for granted 
Mm-hmm. Well, I got a couple other things I want to ask you about, but before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to talk about anything that's currently on your mind. You know, it could be about the book, could be about anything that we've talked about or whatever that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we talk about. Hmm. Let's see. Um, that's a good question. Um, no, I don't. I don't have nothing comes to mind. So keep going, okay. and if I think of something, I'll I'll interject it. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I I would love to hear writing through this book. I would love to hear as you were look as you looked at the life of Jesus and how he engaged with imagination. What what resonated with you about that? Mm. Well, of course, I thought, you know, even long before writing this book, um, it's common among, you know, the creative types um, to, to, to talk about Jesus' parables and how he mm-hmm. talked in parables. Um, and so that's something that has always been foremost in my mind and just the power of story. But I think another, you know, I think what I really am coming more to grips with in, in recent days and, and even writing this book is, is how often... Jesus knew that not everyone would hear or receive his message Mm. um, and how he was okay with that. Um, And so, you know, I think that's, that's something that I have um, thought about. I mean, you know, especially as a, as a writer, I think, well, who is my audience? Who am I trying to reach? And I, you know, do I want to be on the New York times bestseller list? Well, yeah, who doesn't, but, but do I, you know, is that really the most important thing or is it more to reach, the people, you know, a smaller group of people that I can really speak to and connect with who are thinking in the way that I am. Um, so the way that Jesus um, allowed anyone to follow him and listen and hear, but he knew not all were going to receive. Mm-hmm. And then um, another thing that I have just um, really thought a lot about in terms of, of Jesus and the way of Jesus is um is just how again it's it's so obvious but just and i and i mentioned it before is how he was not about um imposing or establishing an empire in the political human way um but how everything was about a few people um committed people um and the gate being narrow rather than yeah. wide and and just like that that's what the kingdom of god is about and it, and it's you know it's 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 forever it's for eternity and no matter where and when we live it doesn't we don't have to impose our christianity on anyone um in order to demonstrate jesus mm-hmm. well the last thing i want to ask you about and i know that we've covered so many uh images and stories in the book. I'd be curious to hear what's what's an image or a story or a metaphor that is either happening right now that you're seeing or in um, or in scripture that you've seen uh, that's outside of the book that's really mm. capturing you right now. Oh, goodness. Um, okay, let me think for a minute. Um, let's see. Um, well, this was, I mean, actually, this this is close to improvement so i hope it's not cheating too much and it's it's kind of a twitter conversation that i got into recently and that is um the idea of goals Mm. um and so uh again it's it's related to kind of related to improvement but but you know we have little hashtag goals and it's funny and cute um but really, and there, but there's, and there's so many books and seminars and conferences built around the idea of being goal oriented. And yet I found myself thinking recently, you know, like, is that really biblical? You know, is, do we, you know, is there a way in which, um, as I, as I expressed, like that we live more in the way, along the way, in the flow, in the groove, um, letting the you know holding everything loosely and letting the lord lead and direct um like my life versus the mind of man plans his way but the lord directs his steps mm-hmm. so i kind of you know i believe we should make plans uh but i'm not sure you know and and maybe we mean the same thing by goal but goal is a metaphor especially because it's so pervasive in sports i think that's 
something we should think about, whether that's like an apt metaphor for the Christian life. Um, and again, it depends on what you mean by it, I suppose, but it's one that I that I resist a little bit. Yeah. Well, you even got me thinking about, and I mean, this is this is literally just a theme throughout the whole book of just what you were saying about goals. Well, whatever the image or the story or whatever, well, what do we mean by that? Right, right, <laughs> Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Language, uh, is, language is tricky. It's limited. It's wonderful. Um, but it is a, you know, words are a sign. They point to something. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think I wrote about this. Oh, this was like in an email that went to a few people. So it's not in the book. But, um, you know, one time I was, you know, my, my, my parents live here in a house we built for them and they're in their 80s. And my dad likes to do yard work. And so one day he was, um, we were looking at a part of the of the lawn and I was pointing to a tree I said that tree over there and he was he was looking at it, like he was looking at my finger pointing but he but it was pointing to a different tree so we were having a conversation about two different trees until we finally said let's walk over to, I, I would need to let's walk over to the tree I'm talking about and it just made me think words are signs so they sometimes point to, you know, I'm, I think I'm pointing to one thing and the person next to me sees it pointing at something else. And we're having conversations about two different things. And so yeah. it's important to remember that as people yeah. of the word. Yeah. Well, Karen, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, The Evangelical Imagination. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book? Uh, well, they can go to my website, KarenSwallowedPrior.com, and just kind of get an overview of everything. I'm uh, And they can get links to the book to get from their favorite bookseller. Uh, and I'm also, I have a new newsletter on Substack, which is free to subscribe to. It's called The Priory, and uh, you can keep up with me there or on just Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> so yeah. uh, just about any place but TikTok, I guess. <laughs> Not there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the wonderful conversation. And just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with all of us. Thank you for having me. I mean, there's there's literally so much from this conversation that I could talk about. But I, I think the two things that I just want to focus on is... How are you engaging your imagination? Are you engaging it through fiction? Are you engaging it through walking in nature? Are you engaging it through different stories? Are you engaging it through history? What way are you engaging your imagination? How are you how are you helping facilitate? How are you like stroking the fire of your imagination? And thinking through all the possibilities. And I think it's it's great that we can use our imagination to to think about also the type of life that we want and we could be inspired by so many things of thinking about the type of life that we want the type of life that we want to build and and figuring out how we could bring bring that imagination that that imagined world that we have into reality into the world and and in the life that we live and the life that we experience and I think the other thing that I just want to harp on is paying, paying attention to what is engaging our imagination naturally as well. And just being a little bit more critical about, and not, not, in, a, not in a demeaning way, but just more of a paying more attention. What am I watching? What is the message behind the thing that I'm consuming? And just realizing that that, that just because something even has a message that you don't even necessarily endorse or that you don't even necessarily like, that doesn't mean that you have to stop. It doesn't necessitate that you have to stop. It's just paying attention to the influence that maybe it's trying to have on you. Because there's plenty of examples that plenty of plenty of works of art, plenty of things that we would probably say, yeah, I'm not sure I actually agree with the message of that or I'm not I don't agree with the idea that that work of art is trying to uh, trying to put out there into the world but it is important that we pay attention to some of those and sometimes it's pay, it's worth paying attention to some of the ideas that we don't necessarily agree with or the works of art that we don't necessarily 
agree with as well because we can learn things in that journey as well and so those are those are some of the things that i'm currently thinking about and again if you want to keep up with me and some of the other things that are engaging my imagination please subscribe to my Substack, to where i just give bunches of recommendations of some of the things that i'm currently learning from and some of the things that are also engaging my imagination and with that i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to sam massey for creating the music for this podcast thank you to karen for being on the podcast and a wonderful conversation and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing